mind if we just offer a prayer before we before we stop before we say anything more? Is that all right? Father God, we thank you that you are the reason that we can see the sky. That you are the reason that we have hope in the midst of a broken world. Um, Lord God, I pray that you would raise our sights uh, to the perfect future that you have for us, but also those signs of the kingdom that we see in the here and now. And God, would you inspire us and do that not just by words and statistics, but by your spirit. I pray right now. In your holy name. Amen. Shane, it's great to have you with us. Yeah, great, great to have you. Here. I didn't mean to bend all the dress, but uh, I'm glad that I'm here. No, that's fine. That's fine. We, we want you to be yourself. It's us that pretend to be something else, you know. Um, Shane, um, for folks who maybe haven't met you before or read anything that you've written, um, just tell us a little bit about uh, your story and how you ended up in Philly. Well, I, I grew up in East Tennessee, which is, uh, you know, the Bible Belt, and uh, I grew up immersed in in the church. Uh, my dad was in Vietnam and, uh, you know, it's, it was uh, very much kind of a God's country kind of world. And uh, we got country music in Tennessee, you know. Um, I'm not, that's not one of the things I'm real proud of, but we do have country music. <laughs> but uh, we got this old song that says, uh, this house is protected by the good Lord and a gun. And if you come unwanted, you'll meet them both, son. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was a strange place. I started to see some of the contradictions, you know, I mean, some of them were quite obvious. So, but not like I, I started to see um, things in the church that didn't always resemble the things I saw in Jesus. Um, and even in myself, you know, I, I found myself kind of uh, using my, my faith as a ticket into heaven and sort of the license to ignore the world around me. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to change that, so I ended up going to Philly originally to go to school. Um, and my mom was not really excited about that. She said, if God wants you to go to Philly, God can pay for it. And then I got a, a scholarship, and I'm like, I just don't pay the bill. I, I love how far it works. We've got to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to read the newspaper in the other. And our faith should uh, not just be a ticket out of this world, but fuel us to engage the injustices of the world around us. And, and so I studied sociology, and I studied the Bible, and... Uh, uh, and, and, and yet, I think it wasn't just kind of in the, the halls of academia that things uh, began to take shape for me, but it was in nine, 1995, a group of homeless families in Philadelphia, out of real desperation, these were really um, women and children, which it was and is our fastest growing homeless population in the States. And, uh, uh, at a time where 3,000 families were on the waiting list for affordable housing, they moved into an abandoned Catholic cathedral and started living there. And uh, uh, I read about it in the newspaper, and um, the response of the archdiocese we found uh, just shattering. Like, uh, they gave them an eviction notice of 48 hours, and if they weren't out, then they could be arrested for trespassing on the church's property. Um, and that was very disturbing to us. Uh, the families were brilliant. They, they held a press conference and they said, we've talked to the real owner of this building. <laughs> the Lord Almighty, right? And, uh, you know, God said, we can stay until we find another place. And they hung a banner on the front of the cathedral that said, um, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? So it was a catalytic moment for us when I had my eyes open and 
about also to the, the, the uh, incredible reality of injustice and what a lot of people face each day. So that's been home. I moved into that, that lasted for months and months, and uh, we ended up moving into that neighborhood um, a few years later, and it's been home for 20 years. Tell us a bit more about the neighborhood, Jim. Well, so it's, it's a neighborhood that, I mean, used to be the, the central place for jobs, and there used to be a, a, a billboards that said, you know, you can have a job by the end of the block, and the factories were everywhere. Uh, the row houses that we lived in were built around the factories, and then those factories have moved out you know, over the last 40, 50 years. We've lost 150,000 jobs. We've got 700 abandoned factories, and uh, a lot of vacant lots. So there's, there's a, I always say our neighborhood is poised for resurrection. Um, and a lot of folks in the suburbs call our neighborhood the Badlands, but I always correct them and say, you, you better be careful if you call a place the Badlands, because that's exactly what they said in Nashville. Nothing good can come from there, but who showed up, right? So we, we really do find God in our neighborhood as much as we feel like we're bringing God in there. And we, we, you know, have taken abandoned houses, which we've been able to get for as cheap as a dollar. Not bad, you know, and uh, uh, pay that off without mortgage or anything. And so we, we uh, you know, take these abandoned houses and fix them up. We planted a lot of urban gardens and, um, you know, have after-school programs and, you know, everything's kind of grown out of the relationships there. But there's also, I think, something that happened in us after a lot of years of living there. Um, I, I like how Martin Luther King said that we're all called to be the good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, maybe the whole road to Jericho needs to be rethought. We need to, you know, ask us landing people in the ditch. And, and one of my mentors said, we're really good at giving people fish. But, you know, you've heard the old saying, give someone fish to leave for day. You, know, you teach them officially for the rest of their life. He says, but we also have to ask, who owns the pond? You know, who built the gates up around the pond? Why does the fish license cost so stupid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all the deeper questions. So, out of that, you know, we, we've seen some of the, what we call, you know, the principalities and powers, as Ephesians says, that hold people down. And there's so many of them, you know, predatory organizations, and there's, you know, all these kind of things. But the, the, the big one that we've been working on recently is the, the, the epidemic of gun violence. And so we've had a lot of success on that one recently. Some days it feels successful in some months, like this one, we've had 22 murders in, in 20 days in Philadelphia alone. Um, so we, we've really been trying to bring attention to that. We've been vigiling outside of gun shops, asking for what we think are pretty reasonable um, uh, laws that might help. You know, and there's one law that we've been having, encouraging which is uh, called One Handgun a Month, which basically says that we're not trying to, you know, annihilate the Second Amendment, you know, but like, how about one handgun a month? If you're buying more than 12 a year, maybe you're not making the world a better place, you know? Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's uh, uh, been blocked. Uh, you know, so we're still trying to win over the hearts and minds because why not? That seems absolutely absurd. You pray for America, help us. You know, but that, that's really true. It's, it's, so we, we've also tried to do some other things to bring attention to that. And one of the things that's been very compelling is we've, we've started taking weapons. Um, and we've had AK-47s and semi-automatic rifles and handguns, and we've been um, enacting that beautiful image of Mike and Isaiah that God's people will beat their swords and plows and their spears into pruning hooks. So we've got some fantastic prophetic welders and blacksmiths and a bunch of neighbors and mothers that have lost their kids to gun violence. So we've been melting these guns down and 
maybe farm tools out and we did one of those weapons conversions at the National Cathedral in DC. So it's, uh, I think it's really exciting to see some of that uh, taking shape. And uh, um, to us, it's very connected to our faith and what it means to love our neighbor. You know, three, three days before I came on the tour, we, we had a 15-year-old kid that I watched grow up um, get shot. And I'm thankful he survived right now. He was shot in the neck. But I think that, that's what's become real to me is these aren't just statistics or rhetorical debates, you know, that, that many of us and many of you here in Parliament and talking about and they are real kids with many like ourselves on the block. I think she and you're you're sitting in front of the whole group of people that almost self by self-selecting being here are pretty passionate about politics. And um, you know, believe in its strategic importance. Don't think it's the be all and end all, but think it's strategically important. And and so you've reflected already there on how things that have happened locally have then led you to be doing things that probably can get a more national profile or that move from the personal to the political. And I think many of us here spend a lot of our lives trying to convince folks who are involved <coughs> in things that are local that actually some of their time might be also really well employed actually being politically engaged. Um, that actually, you know, going back to the Jericho Road, you know, get more CCTV or, <laughs> you know, better security to stop other people getting mugged. Well, it seems like you've had really good success in mobilising people who have passion for locality. And I think in the UK at the minute, there's a lot of people who do. You've had success in mobilising those folks into actually being politically, whether with a large P or a small P, active. I mean, any wisdom to share in, in that, what you call that mobilisation process? Oh, wow. Well, I, I, I think uh, the, the, the stuff on, on the ground in the neighborhoods, the grassroots stuff, I think we've got to be really good partners with folks that are you know, trying to fight some of those systems and structures as well. And uh, uh, sometimes, you know, Andy and I, we're going to all these cities, we do a little Q&A, and one of the questions <laughs> that comes up almost always is, is, you know, how do you sustain yourself? And one of the things that keeps me going is, it, is the relational stuff in my neighborhood, you know, like helping kid with homework, sitting on the street with, you know, a homeless mom. But if, like, all I was doing was, was feeding folks and, like, dealing with the symptoms of, of some of the poverty, I, I think I would start to run dry. But likewise, I think if I was only lobbying for change and talking about things at a macro level and I hadn't actually interacted with anybody on the streets, it would start to feel me too. So I think that, that combination is just a, it's, it's a it's a cocktail that's it's beautiful. I think the, the, the local and the systems together, um, and, and for a lot of us, like we we, we really believe in the small. We, we've taken a lot of cues from a great woman named Dorothy Day, and she said our our goal is not to grow bigger and bigger, but to grow smaller and smaller as we take over the world. You know, and in the standard of the kingdom of God, Jesus talked about is you know mustard, yeast, light, and it's this you know contagious. Uh, invasion of grace and love and, and for a lot of us it starts small you know welcoming folks into our homes and into our churches and things like that and we do a lot of hospitality um, but now there's a whole movement especially around immigration there's great books that have come out about welcoming the stranger looking at theology you know when jesus says you know when you welcome the stranger you welcome me and so there's a whole new sanctuary movement largely of christians that are taking in Folks, many of whom might be trying to get proper documentation, but we have a you know integration catastrophe on our hands. And so we have lawyer guilds, so many of them are, are missional Christian lawyers offering free legal care for folks that need it. But what's also beautiful are these hospitality houses of Christians that are taking in asylum seekers, you know, 
and I was along the border of the U.S. and Mexico, where you know, that's where a lot of our it's kind of the iconic symbol of it. And during the last presidential election, one of the candidates said, "You know, the solution is to have an electrified fence there that just says cross this border and die." A lot of us were very concerned about that. We just didn't feel a lot like Jesus, you know. So, um, but the, this group of folks along the border organized this beautiful kind of pro prophetic witness, and so they gathered along the wall. And uh, folks living in Mexico walked to the border, and folks living on the U.S. side met them there. They met at the border, and they sang each other hymns over the wall. And then this is my favorite part: they served each other communion by throwing the bread over the wall. <laughs> And as I heard that, I thought, what an amazing witness of this God whose love doesn't stop at borders, right? Whose love isn't defined by geography or ethnicity or, you know, uh, biology, um, but invites us to be one again. And I'm, I'm really hopeful on immigration and many of these other things that, that this, a new generation of Christians are, are coming up and they, they really want to see us engage these big issues. I mean, even like Syria, I mean, this morning I was with the 24-7 prayer folks that are really committed to prayer and they prayed, you know, that, that the UK would welcome folks as Christ would, would have us welcome the stranger. And, and I know that you know, the issues are complicated, but, but when we have thousands of folks that are looking for safety and for a home, um, my hope is that, that whether it's in my neighborhood with a homeless woman that shows up on the steps or, you know, here in the UK with folks not too far away and one of the things that's really struck me uh, about what you said in the last few days is that we have to be we have to have our eyes open to where God is at work in our locality, but we also have to have our eyes open as to where there are darker forces at work, you know, where the devil is at work. If we really, you know, um, and you, you told a couple of stories um, illustrating that and, and how the importance of that feeds into your, your work. Would you care to share some of that? I, I think as we, as we, you know, each of us looks at our, our neighborhoods or our world, like the struggles in my neighborhood aren't the same as here, but I think one of the most fundamental things that I, I see is that, that the real disconnect is a relational one. It's, it's not that, you know, rich folks don't care about poor folks. It's that rich folks don't know any poor folks. We don't, we don't know each other, you know, and, I, and Jesus told this powerful story of, the rich man and Lazarus, you know, the rich man kind of lives behind walls and sort of a gated community, separate from the poor uh, man named Lazarus outside of his gate. And, uh, and that wall that he had hid behind ended up not just separating him from the suffering of, of Lazarus, but it separated him from God. And, and I know the walls that I've hid behind, you know, some of them were subtle, you know, office cubicles and picket fences and, you know, computer screens. But I, I think that, that, that in a real way, that's part of what we're up against, is we, we, we can't make poverty history until we make poverty personal. And I, I think that's certainly one of the things that Mother Teresa, uh, who's been a great teacher of ours, that she said so well. She said, it may become very fashionable to talk about the poor, but it still might not be too fashionable to talk to them. And if we really care about the poor, if we really care about immigrants, then we, you know, we know the names. We know the names of those who are being stepped on. And so, in the end, I look at, you know, Matthew 25, Jesus' beautiful account of the judgment. You know, all of us are gathered before God to give an account of our lives. And according to Jesus, um, it's not just a doctrinal test. <laughs> the God goes, okay, virgin birth, 
agree, disagree, or strongly disagree. You know, uh, maybe we wish it was, but the real questions will be asked. So when, when I was hungry, did you feed me? You know, when I, when I was hungry, did you love me? And when I was in prison, did you visit me? And so the, the real test of our faith is, is how it expresses itself in real, concrete acts of love and compassion. And uh, not, not just this in acts of charity, but each one of those is an action of personal love to a neighbor. And I think enough of those personal actions and relationships start to change policy because we realize that a part of loving our neighbor is, is uh, beginning to pass laws and, and, and uh, things that, that uh, make space for love. And bureaucracy can either be a barrier to compassion or I think it can make, up, make an opportunity for compassion. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Shane. We've got space and time now to open up questions uh, to the floor. Um, so uh, could people, could people, if you've got a question uh, that you're burning to ask Shane or a rotten tomato of heresy to throw, uh, please, uh, please do throw a hand in the air and we'll see, see how many questions we can cover in the next 10, 15 minutes. Okay. Um, Shane, thanks so much. Inspirational yeah. so far. Um, can you just give us a bit more of the scale of your community? Just give us a bit more of a picture of how many of there are you are involved on the ground doing this extraordinary work. And how, I'm not going to ask you how you sustain yourself spiritually. How do you sustain yourself body and soul? Where do you get your income from? Okay, sure. Uh, it's evolved over 20 years, of course. You know, when we, when we were like young people in college, uh, we, we just pulled our money together, you know, and we, we read the story of the early church and looked back and said, you know, all of them shared all the money and no one claimed any of their possessions for their own. And, saw that and inspired by that, we pulled our money together, bought a house, and uh, we started as an intentional household, you know, folks living together, but it feels like we, we've been building a village, so now we have about a dozen houses on the same block. Many of our neighbors uh, that are indigenous lead everything now, you know, after 20 years, a lot of us have relocated there, kind of moved out of the way, and uh, one of my mentors always said that uh, really what you want to do is go to the people, live among them, learn from them, bring what you are, build on what they are, and in the end, the people will say we did it ourselves. And we, we really believe that re restoring our neighborhood takes different groups of people working together. So like we call ourselves relocators, those that have moved in, and uh, remainers or indigenous neighbors and returners, or kids like my friend Derek that is from the neighborhood, is going to school, and he's gonna come back to the neighborhood and bring his kids, you know, so all of us working together. And, so now we've got all kinds of stuff that's come out of that. We, some of the guys in the neighborhood identified that one of the problems is that males in our neighborhood don't have a positive male role model. So one in three, this is a mind-boggling statistic, one in three African-American men is in prison or under judicial constraint. And, and one in three. And so it's a large part of our population. 90% of them uh, don't have positive male role models in their, their life. And so these young guys started a, a male mentoring thing called Timoteo from Timothy. And, uh, and they're mentoring young guys and it turned into a football league, actually. And, uh, and so now we've got 200 young guys that are being mentored in that. And, um, so there's, there's a lot of different facets of it. Um, and how we fund it is, is uh, we still pull our money together. A lot of us work part-time jobs and pull money together. I write books and speak, and all that money comes in as well. Um, 
Uh, and, and I guess one of the things, we have tons of supporters that support us too. Um, uh, just recently, we've been in a place where we're really doing some great work with our local government to try to do housing and things like that. So there's a lot of really promising partnerships. And, um, but we, we have collected money shares too, which, you know, can say a lot more about it. Basically, inspired by the, that early Christian economy, we, we have an emergency fund uh, where we tie 10% of our income into this fund, and then small groups are able to bring needs up in our neighborhood. So, you know, if, if someone uh, has a, uh, their, their house is being foreclosed or, you know, their car gets stolen or something, we're able to carry those burdens together. Um, and, and, and incidentally, we also, that's how we do medical care, in case you haven't heard me a little bit of a healthcare crisis. <laughs> so uh, 20,000 of us pull money together to be each other's medical bills, and, and we literally get a letter from some hospital pray for each other, put our money together. We do about $15 million a year in that, $500 million since it started. So that, that's one money pulling thing that we do. And you know, CNN came in there like, is this a silver bullet to the healthcare crisis? My friend had a really great answer. They said, it's not, there's no silver bullet, but it might be a part of the silver buckshot. It's not very knowledgeable to see, but I, I got that. You know, so there's, there's, but I think like we're all trying to work out, you know, how do we provide adequate health here so that it's not a privilege just for those that can afford it. Um, but the church can do better, and so can our government. Another question. Can't believe that there are some more questions. Yeah, please shout loudly. Yeah, I'll try. Um, I think I mentioned, how, how do you sustain yourself spiritually? So, you're dealing with really difficult issues. Progress is slow. What do you do in those moments? Yeah, thanks. We have really good rhythms, first of all, to where we, we have one day a week that we rest our Sabbath. You know, we didn't invent that. You know, it's a great idea in scripture. So, we, we, we literally rest, you know, turn off all the computers and TVs and you know, uh, phones and we rest one day. And we have rhythms for prayer every morning where we, we you know, pray together each morning. It's how we kick off our days. Um, and there's, you know, I think there's kind of holy habits that we do, like retreats and things like that, you know, get some, like, nature in our life. And there's all, all that's true. Um, but I would say a part of what we do, too, is we have a lot of fun. And that's something that I think often in all of our political arenas and in social justice groups and stuff like we can we're dealing with such heavy stuff you can get real serious you know and, uh, and I think that, that one of my uh, my teachers says if we can't laugh then the devil's already won uh, or as Emily Goldman said if I can't dance it's not my revolution you know so we have fun together and that's part of like transforming weapons you know we had a party on Wall Street where we gave away ten thousand dollars in front of the stock exchange you know we, we've done all this fun stuff so it keeps I think it keeps wind in our sail and um, I, I love the people that are on the fun and one, one of my favorite memories was uh, one night while I was asleep I was on the top bunk and one of my community mates uh, snuck in and hung a life-size picture of George Bush, uh, like eight foot above my, you know, right above my bed. So I woke up and I'm like, oh no! You know, and I, I left him there and reminded me to pray for him. But also, you know, to, to, uh, to keep me laughing. So I, I think we, we, we do need a bit of a, you know, playfulness in the sense that, like, the Spirit is about joy. You know, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And we 
we should read that. Something the conservatives and liberals have in common is most of them lost their sense of humor a lot of times. You know, so I think we should be well able to have a one time. I see. Okay. Conservative form, and it can also have a progressive form where it's like, 
oh, you know, thank you that we're not like those people. We would never drive an SUV or drink from styrofoam or whatever, you know? And, and so I think, like, there came a point where we just had to say, we're going to work on ourselves. That's what we can change, you know, in good days. And, um, and, and that'll, that'll be our way instead of everybody else, you know? So, um, yeah, heroin's a really big problem. I, I, I won't go into too much more detail, but we've made so many mistakes as we welcome folks and not understood the monster of addiction. So I think some, there's got to be some kind of middle ground when it comes to recovery um, to where it's neither super professionalized to the point that people are only seen as clients and consumers and not as human beings and friends. And um, on the other hand, like we were so radically opposed to the professionalized models that we were welcoming people and had folks overdose in our bathrooms and steal everything we could imagine. And it was terrible, you know? And uh, then we learned from this recovery community in Philadelphia that has very much the wounded viewer model, right? That, that our wounds are not our liabilities, but they're our credentials, right? So the best folks to help folks who are recovering is folks who are in recovery. And, and so we learned from them, and now we have a partnership. Uh, so I think we need to be really great collaborators, and we need to come alongside those whose wounds make them you know, uh, the best leaders in, in movements like that. Same with, you know, domestic violence and stuff. I, I would be ignorant if I tried to, you know, lead to a bunch of women in you know, recovery from domestic violence. So we try to come alongside those who, who are um, uh, the best teachers because of their wounds and their history. Uh, but we didn't do that in the beginning. I wish we had. Maybe the last question. The last question. No, I'm going to ask it. Shane, um, uh, presume that everybody in this room, uh, you know, you'll never see them again, and, and they won't, they won't tweet nasty things about you. If, if you had carte blanche to share, share your heart over here, and I know you're not going to presume to know what's going on in the UK politically, but if you had something, one thing, one nugget, something that's on your heart at the minute, even if you want to stop and think for ten seconds, <laughs> that you'd love to share. Um, what, what would you challenge us with? Oh, well. I'm so, I, I'm, I'm so grateful. You know, every time I come over here, I think that, that our country, you know, and our church has a lot to learn, you know, from, from, the, from what's happening here. I mean, we, I really, you know, invite your prayers as we try to figure out how to bring the kingdom, in, you know, in Philadelphia and in our neighborhood. But I think one of the things that's a challenge here is when, when things are pretty efficient and it feels like things are going pretty well, I think sometimes we can lose the relationality of, of what love, the love that kind of generates a lot of these great systems and ideas. Does that make sense to where, you know, I think make poverty history is a great idea, but we also have to make poverty personal. And we, we, we can create great units of housing and folks still don't have a home where they've got someone loving on them, you know, and we can have a great healthcare system, but people can die without anybody holding their hand. And so I think no matter how good our laws are, the law can change the human heart, no, no matter how good our infrastructures are, 
Um, love can never be legislated. It doesn't just flow through you know, bureaucracies, but it has to flow through human relationships. And so I think that's why sometimes, even when we have really well-developed countries, we can still be very lonely people and have very high rates of depression and suicide. And so that's one of my prayers, is that, that uh, Mother Teresa's great mind, that we can do no great things, but only small things with great love. That everything that we do would be driven by that love. And, and when we, you know, repair a school that's broken, we would know why we're doing it. When we're welcoming these asylum seekers, we would know their names. And we wouldn't just become uh, rhetorical debates and ideologies, but that we would, we would really realize that in the end, all of this is, is fueled by love. And there's a beautiful passage in Corinthians that says, we, you know, do all sorts of miracles and prophecies and speak in the tongues of men and of angels battle all the mysteries and depths of the world and so everything we have to give it to the poor. But if we don't have love, it's going to be. Maybe that's a good place tonight. Nice. Yeah, a good place tonight. Would you please? Uh, <laughs>